The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. The word of God speaks to us. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is God's word to us. Good morning. If you don't already know me, my name is Cale Freeman. I serve as one of the pastors here, and uh, it's my honor to get to open up the Word of God with you guys today. Um, Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father God, we are uh, here together to worship you in everything today. We're here to worship you with how we sing. We're here to worship you with how we receive your Word We're here to worship you and how we also take communion today. Lord, our entire lives are about worship for you, and Lord, we pray that your spirit would empower us to do exactly that. Give us, Lord, what you require of us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. I was reminded uh, this week about a video I saw about nine or ten years ago. It's quite old. It's called It's Not About the Nail. Maybe you've seen it before. It's kind of a comedy sketch. Now, it starts off, though, very serious, and it shows this picture of this lady, and you can only see about half of her face, and she's talking about this really big problem in her life, and it sounds like a health problem. She's like, I can feel it all the time, and it's like it's in my head, and I don't know if it's ever going to stop. That's the part that scares me the most. I just, I don't know if it'll ever stop, and then all of a sudden, the camera pans over, and you can see that there's like a nail, like literally sticking out of her forehead. (laughs) 
Okay. So then the camera pans over, and then it shows this guy that she's talking to, and he's like, well, there is a nail in your head. <laughs> she's like, it is not about the nail. <laughs> he's like, I'm pretty sure, though, like, if, like, are you sure? Like, if we just got that out of your head, then I, I think it would get a lot better. And they, and they keep going on like this. And she's like, listen to me. I have headaches all the time. I can't sleep. And all my sweaters are snagged, like all of them. <laughs> And it just keeps on going around and around like this. And the reason why I bring this to mind is it's like one of the clearest pictures I've ever seen of what it's like to see the, uh, the, uh, the root of a problem in someone's life, but where they themselves can't see it. And, you know, I don't know about you, but if I have someone that I know and that I love in my life and they have problems in their life and they notice the problems and I can see, at least from my perception, what the solution is and what's at the root of that problem and they can't see it, it drives me nutty. I mean, just crazy. But it's a two-way street, though, because I have things that are going on in my life, and we all do, that I am experiencing the problems of, and I can't see clearly what the root of those issues are either. Well, what we're going to be talking about today in 1 Corinthians 11 is unity in the church. We're going to be talking about unity in the church, and the opposite of that, which is division. You see, if you're reading 1 Corinthians 11 for the first time, or if you're unfamiliar with the passage, you might say, oh, it looks like we're talking about the Lord's Supper today. And indeed, we certainly are. It's one of the, um, uh, uh, one of the most important texts to consider if you're thinking about what does it mean to take the table of the Lord. And yet what Paul is doing here, he's saying like, hey, listen, there is a problem and it has a root in you and you are not seeing it. And he is trying to show them what it is, which is their lack of unity in the church. So if you're not already there, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians 11. 17 through 34, we're going to start in verse 23, though. We'll go back around to that, those other earlier verses in a bit. A little bit of context before we begin. Um, so this is division in the church in Corinth. Now, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you're probably having deja vu right now. You're probably like, yeah, like, didn't we already hear about that? Uh, and yes, you have, like, at least, like, three times. This church was very divided. And, by the way, it's going to come again in chapter 12, uh, it, the, the next time that we're in it. So that being said, yes, there's divisions in the church. Paul's addressed it many times, but this was manifesting itself in a very um, specific way. One, it was between rich and poor. And secondly, it was manifesting itself at the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper uh, goes by a couple of different names. Uh, most of the time, we call it communion here. It's also called the Eucharist, which is Greek for Thanksgiving. It's the practice of believers in Christ gathering together to eat a portion of bread and drink a portion of wine. And whenever we do this, we remember and we participate in the sacrifice of Jesus that secured our salvation. We also proclaim the gospel. And this is also where Jesus is present with us in a very real way, though in a spiritual way. It's a practice which Jesus uses to strengthen our faith and our walk with him, but it also stands as a picture of unity in the church as well. Uh, just one chapter before this, in chapter 10, verse 17, we heard, because there is one bread, speaking of communion, we who are many are one body, speaking of the church, for we all partake of the one bread. It's a picture of unity as much as it is salvation. So today, here's what you're going to hear. First of all, we're going to talk about how it should have been. And then we're going to talk about how it actually was in Corinth. And then after that, we're going to see what Paul commanded that church and what God's call to us today is. So let's begin by reading verse 23 and 24 of 1 Corinthians 11. 
says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night whenever he was betrayed, took bread. And whenever he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the first thing I want you guys to see today is that there should be unity at the table because of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the first thing that we're going to see in this passage. Paul begins in verse 23. He says, hey, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. What he's saying here is, hey, you already have this teaching. I've already given it to you. I'm going to remind you yet again, and that is the teaching of the Lord's Supper or communion. And the way that he teaches them is he uses language from the Last Supper, so a lot of times we get those confused. Uh, the, the Lord's Supper is what we do every single Sunday, and it was instituted, it began at the Last Supper of Jesus and his disciples. And at that Last Supper, which we can read about in the Gospels, Jesus knows that he's about to go and die a death on the cross. And he has the Jewish Passover feast prepared, and he, is, he and his disciples um, uh, take it all together. But then he, he takes a couple of the elements. He takes the bread and he takes the wine. He reinterprets them. He says, hey, listen, everybody. From now on, these things mean something very different. Look at this bread. This bread now represents my body, which is about to be broken on the cross. And this wine now represents my blood, which is about to be poured out for the sins of many. And he did all of these things and he showed them these things. He instituted the Lord's Supper, which we still do today. And he says, hey, whenever you do this, remember me. What he's getting at here is saying like, hey, listen, whenever you take these elements, you should remember the great sacrifice that purchased your salvation, that we are saved by grace and through faith and in Christ. And that happened because of his sacrifice. But then in verse 25, we hear more. It says, in the same way, also he took the cup. And after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. So he's using a lot of the same language here, but here he adds in this little thing about this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So a covenant is a promise. We can get more detailed on that, but a covenant is a promise, and it is how God had historically interacted with his people before this moment. And there was what is called the old covenant that God made with his people Israel at Mount Sinai. That was the time whenever Moses was around and the law was being given and God essentially said, hey, I will be your one God. If you guys will be my one people, just don't rebel against me. Paraphrasing, that's essentially what he said. And in order to ratify that promise or uh, uh, to say it another way, in order to confirm it, to make it official, what they did was they took an oxen and they sacrificed it and they took its blood and they sprinkled it on the people, which sounds like really wild, but that's, that's what they did. The problem is, is that God's people actually rebelled against him, and they actually broke that promise again and again and again, and God says, hey, like, you have broken this covenant, and he could have just left them in their sins and in their rebellion, which, by the way, sin is just rebellion against God. It's rebellion against his will, and yet in Jeremiah 31, we hear about a promise of a new covenant that's going to come, where one God would be, or where Jesus would be our one God, And that we would be his one people, and in that promise, he says that he will remember our sins no more. And what Jesus is saying here is, number one, I'm bringing in the new covenant for the very first time here, and it's coming with not the blood of an oxen, but with the blood of Jesus Christ to make this one official. And this is the good news that we proclaim in this supper. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. 
until he comes. So here's what's interesting. Here's what's going on here. He's saying, one, remember what has already happened, the sacrifice that I gave for all those who trust in me. And then he's saying, hey, right now, proclaim the good news of Jesus as you take this meal. And then it also says, until he comes, where we're looking forward to the hope in that one day he's actually going to return. And we won't just be experiencing his presence at the table of the Lord, but he'll actually be with us yet again. And this is the good news that is offered to us all, and it's by grace, and it's through faith, and it's in Christ. And every single person that's in this room, by the way, has come to faith in Jesus. We don't come out of the womb believing in Jesus. We had to have heard this, uh, this story of Jesus, these claims of Jesus, and we had to decide, do we trust in these or do we not? And for those of us who have believed in Jesus, we trust in these things. And for those of you who are in the room today, and you're like, I don't even know how I got here. I don't even really believe this stuff, or I don't know what I believe about this stuff, and you're still trying to parse that out, I just want you to see that this exact same good news is offered to you, and that forgiveness is offered to you, no matter what kind of things you've done in your life or what kind of things are in your past, is how we were all saved into Jesus. But for those of you who are in the room, who are Christians, who are disciples of Jesus Christ, there's a call here to remember and proclaim the Lord whenever we take communion. I don't know about you, but a lot of times, I think, whenever we all get up and we go through the lines here to receive the bread and the wine, there's probably at least a few of us that are like, I don't really know what this is about, but everyone's doing it, so I'm just going to stand up. I'm just going to blend in, and it seems to be working well. This is week six of this, <laughs> you know? But hey, this is the actual, like, like, these are the instructions for communion. Whenever we take the bread, whenever we take the wine, first of all, we're to remember this great sacrifice that the God of the universe gave to secure your salvation. And then you proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Whenever we get back to our seats and we pray, yes, we want to pray and confess our sins, but we don't just confess our sins without assuring ourselves of the good news that those sins are actually forgiven. We proclaim the good news of Jesus in only a sentence or two, maybe, but we're doing that in our prayers to one another. And all this so that we're looking forward to one day that Jesus Christ will come back and we will be with him forever. Now, all of this is really good, but that's what should have happened. So now I want to show you what was actually happening, which was that there was division at the table because one group mistreated another. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So they were creating divisions in the church. This is what verses 17 through 22 is about, which I'll just sum up here. Um, it was a division between the rich and the poor. And here's how this was happening. In the first century, whenever churches would take communion together, they actually started with a common meal. Now, I'm not talking about like a potluck, because that would have been like a good time, right? But instead, this was more like a brown bag lunch kind of a thing. Like you brought your own food and you yourself ate it and no one shared. Well, the problem with that is that the church was together and the rich were bringing just lavish meals and then the poor were hungry. Some of them had very little to eat. Some of them had nothing to eat. And so they were creating divisions in the church. And this is what it means by an unworthy manner. They were taking a communion, a picture of the Lord's salvation for us and a picture of the unity that we have together, but they were using it as a means of disunifying the church. 
Think of it like this. Imagine in this year, 2023, Edmond, Oklahoma, imagine being the fly on the wall of a family having a meal together, but they're all bringing just the food that they can bring to the table out of their own means. So the dad has a really well-paying job. He brings a steak dinner and all kinds of things. The mom brings a salad with maybe some smoked salmon and some other fancy things. But then the teenager who doesn't have a job, he found an apple somewhere, so he brought that. And then the five-year-old has nothing. Now, just imagine, like, in a real-world scenario, what it would be like to watch them start to eat and not share. Imagine the mom and dad going ahead with their meal. Imagine the teenager who's like, this is the only food I'm going to get today, so he eats the whole apple, core and all. And then the five-year-old just sits there with tears silently. Now, as if that wouldn't be terrible enough to watch, then imagine that dad's like, all right, guys, let's take the Lord's Supper. That is what was happening at this time. They were creating visible divisions as they would go into the Lord's table. And so in verse 27, it says that whoever uh, therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that is creating divisions, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. It was so bad that what that means by being guilty, it was saying, hey, you're basically switching allegiances from the kingdom of Jesus to the kingdoms of the world that put him to death. You're so much not, like, you're, you're missing the point so much that it's effectively like you might as well have been the Roman guards that put the nails in his hands. And by the way, in verse 17, it says this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because whenever you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. If you've been with us for a few months and you've been uh, reading 1 Corinthians and hearing sermons on 1 Corinthians, just imagine all of the crazy And imagine all of the sinful things that this church was doing that Paul is correcting them on. But for the most part, the way that those conversations went is, oh, I see that you're sinning, sinning being going against the will of God, rebelling against him. Hey, you should probably repent. You should probably actually follow Jesus instead. And he rolls on to the next thing. But on this one, he's like, hey, by the way, if this doesn't change, it'd be better if you just didn't meet at all. That's significant. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So there's a few terms that I need to define for you and help you to interpret this correctly. This has been misused in many places. It says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. I want to talk about discern. I want to talk about body. By body here, it's not referring to the bread that represents the body of Jesus. Here, it's talking about the church. Uh, One of the metaphors of the church is the body of Christ. Paul uses this in the chapter before this, and he uses it in the chapter after this. And he is referring to the church whenever he says body here. But whenever he says discern, what he's getting at is to distinguish between two different things. So again, what he's talking about is unity and division. He's saying, hey, listen, if you're not discerning the body, what it means is that you're not distinguishing the church as something set apart from every other social institution in the world and therefore unified together by the blood of Jesus. This is what he means by taking in an unworthy manner to view the church as something that is divided or to treat the church uh, as it is, or, or to treat it as if it is divided. Now, this judgment, though, that he talks about, this is discipline, it's not condemnation. We see this in verse 32. But whenever we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
So this isn't anything um, like losing your salvation because you mishandled the piece of bread. No, no, no. Instead, this is discipline uh, that is meant to lead us to repentance. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that it's not a very strong warning and a very strong call for repentance because it says this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So a couple of things to be said about this. Um, If you are sick and ill and if maybe you're dying, that does not mean that the judgment of God is upon you right now. There's tons of examples in the scriptures where people are sick and dying and the judgment of God is not on them. Secondly, this, uh, an application of this is not to therefore go around and just say to someone who is sick, ill, or dying, hey, maybe you should stop sinning because the judgment of God on you, is on you. Um, that would be a wrong understanding of this passage completely. The main point here is saying that Jesus Christ has saved us and he wants the unity of his church together so much that he's even willing to bring some of us home to keep that unity And there's no reason, by the way, to think that he still doesn't do that today because he still wants the unity today just as much as he does in the church of Corinth. So what would division look like in our church today? Um, You know, thinking through this, there's no way I can think of where we would see the division of our church while we're literally taking the Lord's table. We don't do a common meal beforehand. The Bible doesn't call us to do that, so we don't do that. Uh, I don't know if there's a way that that would happen, and yet division is something that can happen inside of each of us. I mean, our culture and our society is fragmenting at an exponential rate. Uh, the, The things that divide us are now defining us and so often it's our group against another group maybe we're starting to look more like the world and less like Christ maybe we're viewing other groups that are defined by secondary things like our politics or our diet choice race, ethnicity hunters, vegans The list can go on. Maybe we're starting to actually define ourselves based off of that before we define ourselves based off of the church and Christ who died for it. But let's now look at the solution that the Apostle Paul gives us for this division. God calls us to examine ourselves because Jesus wants his church unified. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Whenever he says examine here, he's saying to test yourselves, to to evaluate yourself based off of certain criteria. Now, throughout the scriptures, we are called to do this, to see whether we're in the faith or not, uh, to see if we're following Jesus or not. But right here, it's not talking about a general examination. Right here, it's specifically talking about the examination of evaluating, am I treating the church as one unified church? And am I treating it as something that Jesus Christ purchased together for our salvation, or am I treating it as any other group in the world, and thus dividing it? That is what he's getting at here. So um, one really bad application of this, or we could say one bad application, one, one bad interpretation of this historically in some churches has been that what you're doing is, is evaluating yourself to see if you've sinned too much to take the elements of the Lord's table today. And that's just simply not the case because the whole point of the, of the table is that it's a picture of grace. No one is worthy to the table. Uh, no one's worthy to, to come to the table at all. 
We're all invited to the table by the grace of the Lord Jesus, but no one is unworthy of it just simply based off of how much you have sinned or not sinned this week. But we can take it unworthily, which is to divide the church and create divisions in our hearts and in the actual groups of people in our church while taking the Lord's table as a picture of the unity, uh, as a picture of the unity while actually dividing the church. So Paul says, examine yourself, and that's what we have for us as well today. We're to examine ourselves and test ourselves to see if we are upholding unity or helping create division. Ask yourself this, how am I selfishly dividing the church by mistreating a brother or a sister in Christ? How am I selfishly dividing the church by mistreating a brother or a sister in Christ? You know, the the context of this particular passage was between rich and poor. And we can talk about a lot of different groups here, but I don't want us to miss that. Do Do you only hang out with people in your same tax bracket? who have a similar house as you, who have the same number of kids as you, who eat like you? Do you humiliate the poor because you're unwilling to live life beside some of them who might have a lesser house, a less comfortable house than you? Do you not want to hang out with them because, not because they have a different kind of fad diet, but because they can't afford the kind of food that you would prefer and you choose not to eat their food? Are you humiliating the poor? Do you look at the poor and say, hey, it's obviously their fault that they're poor. If they would just do things the way that they're supposed to do, like me, they wouldn't be poor at all. And we could get this figured out by like next Tuesday. But also, that's a two-way street. Do you look at people that you at least perceive as being rich and make fun of them? The things that you evaluate that they might hold dear to them? Do you look at them and judge them and say, that's a ridiculous use of their money while at the same time you resent them and you want their money at the same time? Or do you look at someone in our church and say, hey, they have lots of money, therefore they must have really wronged someone in order to get that. That's a very popular notion these days. How are you dividing the church and how are you selfishly dividing the church by mistreating a brother or sister in Christ? And yes, um, right here we're talking about groups. We could talk about political groups. We could talk about race, ethnicity, nationality. Opinions have become groups now. But it also comes down to individuals. Um, Is there someone in this church that you've just had a hard time with, a falling out with, or something like that? Romans 12, 18 says to live peaceably with all as much as it is within your power. Are you obeying that? Ephesians 4 says of anger to give no foothold to the devil. Are you obeying that? Hebrews 12, 15, avoid roots of bitterness. Have you become bitter with someone? Well, the Holy Spirit might be highlighting somebody or some group in your mind's eye right now. And what we have to do with this is seek reconciliation. In verses 33 through 34, we see that there was a direct action item for that church, which was to change how they were doing communion together, that they would not create division. Again, that's not our particular problem here, but there may be divisions in your own heart, and you have to take actual action on that in order to bring about reconciliation, a restoring of the relationship. 
And if somebody comes to you seeking reconciliation with you, you might know exactly what it's about because maybe it was a blow-up fight or something like that. You might also have the experience where somebody comes up to you and wants to reconcile with you and you have no idea what they're talking about because it was all an internal division. But those are real as well. Uh, Years ago, I had a friend um, who I used to be closer to and I'd become increasingly jealous of him. He had the job I wanted. He had the friends that I always wanted. He had tons of hobbies and he was awesome at it. People just really loved this guy. And I had become so upset with him and jealous of him that I had created division in our relationship and thus I had created division in the church because of it. And I'm not making myself out to be the hero of the story, but Jesus is the hero of the story. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because I just want you to see that I'm just like everyone else in this room. And Jesus convicted me of my sin. And I went to this guy and I had a conversation with him. And it was beautiful. It was so good. He quoted scripture back to me. He accepted my apology. He restored our relationship. We restored our relationship together. And that is because of the hope that we have in Christ and the power that the gospel actually gives us to have unity in our church. And yes, by the way, if somebody comes to you and they want to reconcile, to have a true, full reconciliation, you actually have to also forgive them. And for some of you in the room, you've had such terrible things happen to you that you're like, I don't see how I could possibly forgive that person. What I don't mean is that forgiveness is that you just say, oh, yeah, sure, I forgive you. It was nothing. Like, it may have been something very significant in your life. You might need the help of pastors or counselors or mediators. And yet, I just want you to hear that in order to have a real reconciliation, both parties actually have to be reconciled. And we are known for reconciliation. And we are known for forgiveness. Um, Most principally, Jesus Christ, who died for us while we were yet sinners. And he forgives us our sins. And yet, all throughout church history, we hear about great stories of forgiveness and reconciliation. One of the greatest stories happened in the 1950s. There was five missionary families. They decided they wanted to reach an unreached people group in Ecuador. And this was like a... This is like a tribal kind of situation, uh, a group of people who had never heard the gospel before. And they say, hey, we know it's dangerous, but we're going to go reach them. And the men from the five families get in a plane. They fly into the jungle to meet these people, and they're killed on the spot. They were speared to death. And by the wisdom and the logic of the world, at worst, those families could have hated those people, could have resented those people, could have wanted revenge on those people, and it would have made total sense. What actually happened, though, is that these families actually stayed, and they actually continued the work to let these people know about the good news of Jesus, and eventually they meet them with Jesus, they accept Christ, they become believers in Jesus, and not only that, they would say that they became family with these people. Well, one of the sons of one of the men that was killed, uh, his name was Steve Saint, And this guy, um, you can look him up on YouTube. He's got tons of videos of him going around and telling other people about God's work in this uh, this, uh, missionary situation in Ecuador Ecuador that he grew up with. But the craziest thing is that he carries, or he brings with him, he doesn't carry him, he brings with him uh, one of the tribesmen, wherever he goes. And he talks about this, and he interviews him, and he lets him share. But what's crazy is this isn't just like one guy who's a part of the tribe that killed his dad, This is the guy who killed his dad. 
He, this guy literally put a spear in his father whenever he was like eight or nine years old. And yet they're traveling around the world telling others about the power of forgiveness and reconciliation that Jesus Christ brings us. So what is God calling each of us to do today? What's he calling you today before the sun sets? What's he calling you today to do before you leave this building today? What's he calling you to do before you even take communion? Shouldn't Christ receive the reward of his suffering? I mean, we all remember all the time that the reward of Jesus' suffering, the thing that he purchased with his blood, is our salvations. And we often don't forget that if we are believers in Jesus. And yet we often forget that he purchased us together and unified, and he purchased the unity of his church, and King Jesus will have whatever he wants. And we can have hope in that, because one day, even if there's a person that you're like, I don't know if I could ever be reconciled to, one day, if we believe in Jesus and that person does too and they're part of the church, you will be reconciled with him or her ultimately. And you will be with Jesus, you'll be together, and you will love each other's presence. And that is good news that Jesus brings us in the church today. But Jesus wants the unity of the church right now. And you have the ability to either follow him and give him the reward of his suffering, what he actually died for in your life, where you have the opportunity to not. So will you give Jesus the reward of his suffering? Let's pray.